J. Trump and his stupid tweets. Almost 35,000 tweets, 20 million followers. He can't help himself tweeting, Donald J. Trump, people are pouring into Washington in record numbers. Bikers for Trump are on their way. It will be a great Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Yeah, right. Donald J. Trump, the same people who did the phony election polls and were so wrong are now doing approval ratings polls. They are rigged just like before. What's going Donald on? J- um, what are you reading? No, I'm nothing. I'm just, I heard Trump. Um, you know, he's, he, he, we he, said this we didn't, we didn't guy want to talk can't about him. stop tweeting, and we it's like give him a platform I'm, on our with all the jobs anymore. I am bringing back into the U.S. Just check this out. Even before taking office, stop with it. all the new auto plans coming back into our country, and with the massive cost reductions. No, wait, listen. Wait, I have. Give me that. I have, we had an agreement. He's taking credit. Stop for it. Just give it to me. Welcome to the Giles Files. And my name is, when I get this chord straight, I'll know, Nancy Giles. And on this show, you're going to talk to me and my executive producer, Nancy Wyatt. Give it up, Nancy. Hey. (laughs) That didn't go the way I was hoping it would go. But on the Giles Files, I'll be examining all kinds of stuff. Talking to people on the street, talking to people in the studio. I went to the, the, the Yale Drama School and got a degree from the University of North Carolina. And what people want me to do when I'm signing, I would say one out of every three people, could you write, uh, fuck you, <laughs> go fuck yourself. Uh, this is for my dad. Would you tell him to eat it? And I go, sure. That is the voice of Lewis Black, who is a Grammy Award winner for a stand-up comedy, a New York Times best-selling author for his humor books. He's an actor, a writer, and my close personal friend. He's been on Broadway. He tours all around the country. And Lou has some stories. Check it out. Where'd you go as an undergrad? I went to the University of North Carolina. Okay, uh, and then Yale. Okay, so you came out of... Yeah, and I came out of there with a theater degree with an emphasis, Mm -hmm. seriously, in playwriting. Right. I mean, that was... uh, um, so and, the die was cast already then. I mean, mm-hmm. was there, what had, what play did you see that made you go, like, this is what I want to do? Was it like that? I don't know. I can't, I, the, the one I, I'm not sure which the first one was. Uh, I mean, it may have been, partly it was, you know, partly it was my, my they had, uh, this is the fruitiest thing <laughs> I've ever, I admit to. But, oh, good. Uh, is, my parents uh, went to a lot of theater, and so they had a, uh, a whole bunch of albums that were uh, like the sound of the the, the uh, uh, South Pacific, mm-hmm. um, Oklahoma. Um, you know, they had like about twenty. You know, all those 20, classic musicals. twenty musical scores. Okay. All of Rodgers and Hammerstein and uh, Bach and Harnick and um, uh, in the uh, and they had all that stuff around. So and I would listen to it and uh, and it kind of fascinated me. And I liked the music I, and. Uh, the, you know the fact that I'm uh, that I, I that, that was really like a profound influence in the fact that I'm not gay is really astonishing <laughs> because and then they had some other things there was a thing and partly this where we are in the West Bank was partly inspired by the fact that when when later when I initially they had things there was a place in New York called the upstairs of the downstairs oh, and the yeah. upstairs of the downstairs was Julius Monk a lot of people who eventually went on to write television on the West Coast. That's right. Uh, came out of there, and they would have, they were it was sketches mm-hmm. and, and and little and musical numbers mm-hmm. and that kind of and all like of that sat- st- satirical musical yeah, stuff. Yeah, and all yeah. that stuff really got to me. And then my my folks started taking me, or especially my father, started taking me to the theater when I was uh, twelve, thirteen, and uh, we I think I mean it may have been Hello Dolly. 
May You've got been. to be kidding me. Like, Hello, Dolly was the thing that, like, made you... But it may have been. It was one of... I mean, it was whatever was around that time. I mean, if I went back, I could probably track it down. Uh -huh. And then it would probably frighten me, <laughs> I think, what it was. But I came to New York, and I remember the first play I saw in New York was Tom Poston was doing... Um, and I was a big fan of Steve Allen, and so Tom Poston was doing uh, The Golden Fleece, mm -hmm. which was not a phenomenal play, but it was being done on Broadway. And I said, my father, I said, can we go see this play? And we went and saw that, and I thought it was great. And I just, the whole thing, I liked the concept of creating a reality that other people entered. I'm so fascinated that it came through the musicals mostly and not necessarily plays, because I was thinking about this, thinking I, I'm sure he must have seen some, like, Stoppard play or something really profound. And no, it wasn't profound at wow. all. It was fruity. <laughs> but I, I saw, you know, the, and the other one, though, that really I, I, that I, I can tell you that I did think was terrific was... Uh, was Fiorello, which gets no play. Nobody does it. No, they don't do that anymore. And there's some really nice uh, songs in that. And it was Tom Bosley. Tom Bosley, that's yeah, right. Who I eventually got to meet. And it oh. was great. You know, that was <laughs> that's, I know. It's still, it doesn't get old. Does that get old for you? No. No, it doesn't get old for me either, meeting people that I love. Yeah, and people that had a big effect. Yeah, I know. So when I first met you, you were doing, it was right here on the West Bank stage, and you, right. were, you were still doing your plays. But I remember coming to a show, and you were—you had like a, some booze in one hand and a cigarette in the other, yeah. and you were like standing by the mic, just kind of yeah, like yeah. crazy mad about something. But I think you were just introing a play. How did you go from the playwriting to the funny stuff? Like, what happened? I mean, you were producing your plays were being done, right? And then what was? But the, I was doing my plays. You no were doing one them yourself. else <laughs> showing even the vaguest interest. I mean, I'd had plays. I had just enough. Um, reinforcement as a writer that it was like kind of a you know that you know the the old thing of a, a what is it called there's something a, a kind of reinforcement where it's not uh, consistent where the oh pigeon, yeah there's a psychological thing you, like the that. pigeon the, hits the thing yes, and, yes. The, and, the, um, and the food comes out right 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 but if you do it if it if it's irregular the pigeon will smash its head he'll well, keep that, smashing his head and that's what playwriting oh, was God. so i would get uh so before I even took over at the West Bank, I had a production at, uh, of, a, of, a, of a play that I wrote at the Magic Theater in um, San Francisco. And the Magic Theater had been the theater that uh, one of my heroes, Sam Shepard, had okay. really, that was where Sam Shepard really kind of, after he left New York, that's where he went and he wrote. So you're thinking, okay, I'm so on my I, way. So I'm on my way. And, it was, uh, and then the play was produced there. And the critic in the, a magazine called New West, which is the New York magazine of, of California, mm -hmm. Uh, said um, that none of my plays should be produced in California ever again. Those were his words? Yeah, and I thought, wow. And, and that made me feel, initially I was upset, and initially I said, wow, if I could upset somebody that much, I'm doing something. Okay, right. okay, that's good. I know it may seem strange to many of you that I would choose to open a gun store, but to be honest, the NRA, after years and years, it's finally gotten to me. They've really taught me that, that, well, guns don't kill people. Mentally ill people with guns kill people. And if we all had enough guns, we could kill all the mentally ill people. <laughs> it was, after Sandy Hook, oddly enough, the NRA that pointed out to the American people, we have a problem with mental illness. And whenever I think about the problem of mental illness, the first people 
that I want to talk with are the good folks at the NRA. <laughs> Their work in the field of mental illness is, as we all know, legendary. <laughs> My friends were, had a band, and they played down the street at this place, Kratz Cradle in, uh, in, in Chapel Hill. And they said, why don't you come over and do comedy in between? That's how that all started. So I just walked on stage. There was no prep, no nothing, just... Did, did you it. have any material or... or did yeah, you... I did. The material was all based on... The, every. You know, it's that thing of, of people think you're really funny bullshit. Oh, no. So you that know? was what had gotten you there. You know, so people say, oh, God, you know, you could really do that on stage. Well, um, I had all these stories about my sex life. And I really... And <laughs> I didn't were, mean to laugh. I just chuckled uh, automatically. No, no, but it was true. So they sorry. were very funny. <laughs> so, like... Like, do you remember, like, one of your first bits? Oh, yeah, one of my, you know, it was, uh, one of my first bits was called The Ascent of the Left Breast to the Nipple, <laughs> in which I was told by my friends, this is just the gist of it, it's so much deeper. And so I was told by my friends that, uh, in, 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 you know, this is like I'm 15 and, I'm, and I, I can go to second base, as they say, um, that, you know, in order to excite her that, to dial her breast. Like it's a phone? Yeah. <laughs> And that's what I did. And then I described what happened. And, and it did work. It was all about, the, the whole, my whole thing about sexuality was the level of ignorance that I brought to the table. I mean, it was just, I knew nothing. Has that changed? Yes, no, it has changed. That, I, I mean, what do you do now with touch-tone phones? Okay. I mean, has that, has that altered your breast joke in any way? No, I I've, I've, I've dropped the breast joke. <laughs> all that went out eventually after about five years. But it was really... Uh, um, and it was that, it was a, a, uh, the first time I tried to lose virginity, the, the woman said to me, um, uh, I don't think that's the right place. <laughs> and I said, uh, do you know where it is? And she said, I'm not quite sure. I said, uh, I'm going to tell this story for the rest of my life. And I will, and I guarantee you, I will treat you kindly. Said, you don't know. So she didn't know, but she was sure you weren't in the right place either. She knew that we weren't, you know, and I was, because, and. It, we, it was like we tried all night. We tried everything. Did um, anything hit at some point? No, no, we never made it. Okay, well, but that's... it was you know, but it made for a, <laughs> it made for a good bit. <laughs> so okay, so there's sex. Right. So and then politics, because that's what I remember when I first saw right. you. Is you would literally, go, I think you even might have had a newspaper. That sounds like you had three hands: booze, <laughs> cigarette, and a newspaper. Yeah. But you were going through things that were going on in this town right then, and sort of turning them into instant right. hilarity. So why why is that so funny? Why are politics so funny? Well, they weren't, uh, it, it, according to many people, they weren't as funny when I was doing that because I was told. I mean, seriously, I couldn't get you? on. Uh, and I wasn't doing a lot of politics except down here. I mean, when I was on oh, the okay. road, uh, I would give like 10 minutes to politics and then do this other stuff like weather and da-da-da-da and all of these other kind of things I'd observe. Right. Were they more boring? Those other things you're sort of rolling. I mean, were those kind of like the tame things that you did? The politics. No, they were the, actually in retrospect. I liked. I liked what I was. I liked okay. that, and I didn't really want to become. It's like I didn't want to be. I dropped being a Jewish comic or using Jewish as a thing almost immediately when okay. I went on the road. It was like that gets old. That's done. That doesn't I just, work. Why? A, I, I just instinctively. There, there are people who've done it. They're great at it. It's not what I'm great at. I'm not. I'd already kind of left the tribe, 
So I'm really not going to sit there and, you know, you know, and I'd use it when it made, like, right. you know, you came up to a holiday, I would do it, Passover, okay. Christmas, I had my little take. But otherwise, you know, uh, it, but it wasn't. It wasn't my point of view. Right, my and that wasn't of, all of it. It's like, yeah, I understand. I understand. And so, uh, um, so that you know that went, and then um, I didn't want to be a, just a political comic. You I know, see. Because uh, I had done initially. I, I I would do a bit of politics all the time, and that's what I wanted to be. I'm going to do this, and I'll do that, and I'll do this. Not and limit yourself to just one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's I. I'm not, uh, and, and, and partly because it took a long time for me to get really funny at talking about it. I mean, that's, it's not easy. Well, no, I know, because in the beginning, I mean, I, I know you, and I know that you really do get angry, but I also know sometimes that anger is really funny. But there were times that I saw you when it was just kind of anger. Yeah, it was. Because it, it wasn't funny. Yeah, and now I do it and I get angry, but now at least I know... Um, I go, you know, my brain goes, okay, we got to stop, and then I and I point out to the audience that, and they laugh, and then we okay. move on. Okay. So I don't uh, kind of. Uh, it doesn't just. Yeah. On them, uh, we had this conversation once before, and I I really still maintain I haven't seen a lot of conservatives or people from that point of view that are funny. I mean, or conservative comedy. To me, it always seems to be mean it seems to put down like the people who are already put down now can a conservative be funny i think they can yeah. I, I i do i think if you drop the nonsense and i think the conservative's strongest point of view is is uh you know we're gonna we're gonna pay for this but we don't want to pay top dollar we want to do this efficiently so there's all sorts of stuff within the government that a conservative taking a point of view mm-hmm. and applying it um, without bringing the nonsense in, in the, where they they could actually be funny. I think seriously. Funny. Yeah. I mean, I I uh, haven't heard it. That's why I'm asking. No, you. No, I mean it's generally not around. You know who's you know who does it well time to time is uh, when he's when he's not you know kind of like veering off is uh, P J O'Rourke. Okay. He all right. But, but he he's does another. a lot of writing. Of right. It. Right. I want to dedicate this song to a very special man. We love you. We thank you, and we will always be proud of you. There's gonna be a change. I feel bad for my life. It's gonna be real cruel. Gonna be so different. Gonna cut like a knife. We had a a brilliant president who tried to represent and reach his hand across the aisle. But the GOP, they just wouldn't see. Close their eyes, told their lies, refusing to act reasonably. With help from KGB, they hacked up Hillary. And lazy folks didn't vote. An orange troll stole the job away. I just can't find words to say Obama, don't go away I'm talking about Barack Hussein Obama Oh yeah, the president who makes me proud Yeah, yeah, so cool conservatives run for the most If we want to make the world a better place Kick Republicans out and launch them into space Huh? Na 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 na. That's 
That's right, that's right. Kick him out, kick him out. I'm talking about Barack Hussein Obama. Oh, yeah. The president who makes me proud. Show no so cool conservatives run for the mamas. See the economy, an auto industry, past pay equality, healthcare for you and me, took science seriously, renewable energy, they dressed so stylishly, and they were scandal free, believed in climate change, he wasn't weird or strange, no more don't ask, don't tell, and took Bin Laden to hell, got two women supreme, got us to dream big dream, protect the water and sky so that we didn't die, and Obama didn't lie, well, he smoked his ciggies on the sly, that's it! I'm here backstage in the green room of MSNBC with not only a brilliant journalist and a wonderful person, but someone who I consider my friend, Joy Reid. Nancy, it's always great to see you. Joy, I have to ask you to start with, how the hell do you have so much energy? How, how is that? You do your show. You're, you sub tonight for Chris Hayes. You've subbed for uh, Chris Matthews. You have a show on the weekends. You're an analyst and you're on all the other shows. What drug are you on? Coffee with espresso shot. Is that it? That is it. And also, I think type A personality syndrome, where like even when I'm trying to go to sleep, I'm just constantly like, wait a minute, I'm missing something. I have to be on. And I think I'm so on during the day and really more, even more at night, that it's just hard to sort of wind myself down. Really, the hardest thing is to wind myself down and go to sleep. What do you do to do that? Glass of wine. <laughs> I'm all substance driven. Substance is driven. Have you always been a type A personality? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I've always been a, uh, a late, uh, well, I, I'm usually an, a late riser and I stay up late. I've always been a night person. Um, and I've just always been an information junkie. I love to take in data. And so I've always just been this nerd. Did you know you wanted to do the kind of work you're doing now? Well, how would you, well, what's on your business card? How do you describe yourself? Well, I describe myself as a writer who does television because I'm primarily a writer. I've been a writer since I was a kid. Um, everything from short stories. I used to even used to write horror stories, believe it or not. Uh, I just wanted to be a writer and, and write novels and books and things. And then um, at the same time, I was always a news junkie. My mom and I would sit up and watch Nightline. Even when I was very young, I loved the news. And I did used to sort of teleport myself and project that I wanted to be on the McLaughlin group. I'd love to be on Meet the Press. I always just thought if I could just be a guest on there, it would be so cool and I could hold my own. It would be great. Great. I never imagined I'd be doing all of this. I didn't go to school to try to do TV. I just always was like, you know what? I love politics. I'd love to be a guest on those shows. You knew at an early age. I love that you were watching shows like the McLaughlin Group. I used to watch it because my parents watched it. But I have to be honest with you, the Sunday political shows <laughs> is how I always felt about them. So how, how young were you when you were watching those shows? Like in grade school? Yeah, it's crazy. I was probably uh, at least in sixth, seventh grade, I started getting really into news and politics. And I'll tell you what one of the things that happened um, when I was, and I can't remember what grade I was in, I don't want to age myself, but when the Iran hostage crisis happened, I was in elementary school and I can remember it like it was yesterday. I, I was, you know, staying up too late as usual, um, sitting up late and I was mesmerized by this new thing, Nightline, which at the time was a countdown for the hostages. That's exactly right. It started as this late night uh, attachment to the news just about the hostage crisis. I think it would have been 1979, 1980. Yeah, it was like 79, 80. And so I'm watching this and my mom actually let me stay up because she saw I was so fascinated with it. She said, okay, come on, you can stay up just tonight. 
And then the next night I stayed up again and she said, okay, you can stay up just tonight. And it was sort of interesting. It became kind of a bonding thing for me and my mother because I was the only one who stayed up and did it. <laughs> my sister and brother were much smarter than me and went to bed, but I stayed up every night and watched Nightland. I don't, I can't remember ever missing it. Whoa. Now here's what's funny. While you were watching Nightline, I think I was watching Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which tells you, you know, sort of the sad little, uh, trail that I went down. But I do remember, because I will age myself, I'm a bit older than you, I remember being fascinated by the Watergate uh, hearings. And they interrupted daytime programming back then. They didn't do a special thing. So there were no soap operas. Maybe that's why I was watching. (laughs) It was a soap opera. But see, I think politics is a soap opera. If you look at the drama that's taking place right now between Barack Obama, the outgoing president, and Donald Trump, the incoming, it's all drama. Donald Trump is drama in human form. All of his sort of psychological needs, his neediness, all of these sort of weird psychological issues he's working out from when he was a Queens rich kid who didn't feel respected by the Manhattan rich kids, all of his sort of things are out So you don't have to guess what his psychological state is. He's tweeting it. And he's such a study in psychology and narcissism and and, and just, I, I call him a bottomless pit of need. Having that become the president of the United States is drama. And I don't think it's a good thing for it to be drama. I'd rather a drama-free, competent, uh, coherent presidency that makes me proud. I'm sorry, I'm laughing at the coherent part. Go on. Yeah, but, you know, this is the one we've got. And so analyzing it is an important job. Somebody's got to interpret what's happening. And so I I don't see it as that much different from Peyton Place or General Hospital. You better believe it. I mean, he's kind of almost like the Erica Kane of politics. Erica, who was a very, very needy girl. And who never got an Emmy. She finally did. She got one. I think after like 16 years of not getting it, she finally did get one. Yeah. Well, maybe this is, uh, unfortunately, the White House is Trump's Emmy. I wake up every morning um, brimming with optimism. Here's more Lou Black. My nipples are pert and I'm ready to go. Because I, I truly believe that today is going to be the day that, that this great country gets it right. Why wouldn't today be the day? We all pretty much share exactly the same hopes and dreams we all have we all basically want the same thing and uh and I, why wouldn't we find it today why wouldn't this be it after making mistake after 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 mistake and then there was the time you know after mistake that wouldn't we just by accident, stumble in the right direction. Why wouldn't today be the day? God, I'm happy. I got dancing feet. I put on dancing queen. And I get up to my, to my uh, coffee table there and I grab a mug and look down at the front page of the paper and go, maybe tomorrow. Well, that's our show. Thanks to our guests, Louis Black and Joy Reid. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt, produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt, recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey, and at MSNBC, and at the West Bank Cafe in New York City. 
Special thanks to Showbridge Studios in New York and to our future big name sponsors. We'll be back soon with a new Giles Files. Okay? <laughs> <laughs>